NPR's David Green found that his reporting assignment in Moscow grew on him the longer he stayed. That's the story of Russia in some ways. You know, you get there and it feels so foreboding and unwelcoming. And by the end, often you're just in love with the place and passionate about it. Coming up, he shares what riding the Trans-Siberian Railway showed him. We'll also hear what Europeans are debating about immigration. There's this fear that things will change when actually it's a fear that's being fomented by a far-right radical fringe. And some of the most treasured souvenirs in Europe are the colorful ceramic tiles of Portugal that have been a Portuguese signature for centuries. You can have everything under the sun because Portugal has done tile work for over 500 years. If I do a decoration at my place, I have to put some tiles. If I'm renewing my kitchen, is with tiles. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Before NPR's David Green left his post as bureau chief in Moscow to join the team hosting Morning Edition, he booked a trip to the end of the line on the Trans-Siberian Railway. He hoped the people he'd meet on the 6,000-mile winter rail journey would teach him a lot about the working-class backbone of Russia. David joins us a little later in the hour ahead to tell us what he learned about the Putin years in Russia from the lives of its ordinary citizens. We'll also explore how immigration issues are being debated in Europe as boatloads of refugees continue to cross the Mediterranean to escape war and uncertainty. But let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves on a lighter note as we look into the important role ceramic tiles play in decorating the streets and buildings of Portugal. From religious figures and battle scenes painted on tiles in the 16th century, to Art Nouveau illustrations in the 20th. These tiles are a highlight of Portuguese architecture. Our guides into the world of Portuguese ceramic arts are Lisbon-based tour guide Cristina Duarte and Robert Wright, who also specializes in tourism in Portugal. They'll take your calls in a moment at 877-333-7425. Robert and Cristina, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Cristina, tell me, as a Portuguese person, what do tiles mean to the culture? tradition especially. It makes part not of your everyday basis, but also of your culture. Culturally, because we were raised seeing those tiles in most of the most important monuments and uh, churches, and also representing parts of our culture. You go to a church, you don't see paintings done by Raphael or Donatello, even because they are Italian, they are not Portuguese, but you see the same representations. In tile. So the beautiful paintings on the tiles. On the tiles. Now, Robert, when you say tiles, what exactly do we mean as opposed to canvas and so on? What, what, what is a tile in Portugal? A tile in Portugal is a specialized form of doing ceramics, basically. Everybody's seen vases and are familiar with ceramics and plates and that kind of thing. But actually, if you just do the same sort of process and put it on a wall as a square, there you go. It's a tile. Now, are these mostly decorative in a Moorish kind of way where you don't have a lot of images and they're just patterns? Or would they be like paintings broken into a grid and glued onto the wall? You can have everything under the sun because Portugal has done tile work for over 500 years. It started out as an Arabic tradition. That's where it came from. One of the most important kings in Portugal, Manuel I, he was the one who sort of brought tile work from Spain over and it's just developed on its own. Cristina, what is the Portuguese word for tiles? Azulejo. Do you want it to make it even more complicated? You put it in plural, and azulejos. And where did azulejos come from? <laughs> from the Arabic word alzulech, which is a square of polished ceramic. Oh, it actually literally means a yes. square of yes. polished ceramic. Yes. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Now, when we think about tiles, uh, most of us are going to be going to Lisbon. Robert, when you're in Lisbon, what would your favorite tile panels be? Mainly uh, modern work, because it's so interesting. There is one avenue... It's not necessarily in a touristy part of Lisbon, but it's very easy to get to. It's Avenida Infante Santo that has a series of tile panels from the 50s and 60s. Most people think old for tiles. From the 1950s and 1950s 60s. 1950s and 60s. Very great modern artist. One of my favorites is oh. Maria Kyle. Christina, when you're thinking about tiles, where will you see them? Will you see them in restaurants? Will you see them uh, see in the them, subway? Yeah. Where do you look? All over. It is what I was saying in the beginning. It makes part of our everywhere if I do a decoration at my place, I have to put some tiles. If I'm renewing my kitchen, is with tiles. So it's, it's not only culture and tradition. It makes part of our everyday basis. One thing is art, but also the purpose of it. 
And, and what, what is the purpose of it? The purpose of it, first of all, they are very washable mm-hmm. because they are polished with the glaze. So in places where you have more humidity, like uh, the mm. kitchen or the washroom, well, avoid steam and grease from the walls. And, sure. and consequently, you see yes. them in a lot of restaurants where it's easy yes. to clean up and it gives exactly. that restaurant a little bit of uh, history and a venerability. Christina Duarte and Robert Wright are teaching us about the stylish and practical importance of the colorful tiles in Portugal right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Barbara from Princeton, New Jersey, joins us on the line at 877-333-RICK. Hi, Barbara. Hi there. I fell in love with Portuguese tiles 48 years ago when I decorated a kitchen around them in the, in the yellow, blue, and white. And then I moved, and since then I've been trying to get back to Portugal to see them again. But I was perplexed when it came to buying them. I couldn't tell which, in the souvenir shops, they're not hand-painted. How do you tell which tiles are authentic and which are just made in Hong Kong? That's a good question because a lot of people want a souvenir tile when they go to Lisbon as sort of a reminder. Maybe not buy an entire panel to decorate your kitchen, but many people want a single one. You can find tile work in different places in Lisbon. For example, you can go to what they call the Thieves' Market, and you can find some old, it's basically a flea market is what it is, and you can find uh, some examples of tile work there. And uh, you can also find them in certain museums, as well as there are still factories that make tile work that have been around for centuries, and they still produce tiles. I did see the Santa Ana shop, and I did buy a tile in a museum, and I'm pretty sure that's authentic. Mm -hmm. But it's fair to say that the little tiles that are in the souvenir shops are not authentic and um it's it's a give and take it's probably not but you never know and the thing is if you enjoy it that's basically yeah a tourist your criteria in a tourist shop if you got a tile for five dollars it's going to be just right. printed up and, and and sold but if it works for you that's a fun souvenir very accessible and packable a good memory christina yes exactly uh for the glaze size you're telling mm-hmm. if it is a good memory if you want really to bring an original glaze style probably in an antique shop but it of course that it will not cost you a five dollars and if you want to go to, uh, yeah, you can find a, an old a historic a, yes, a piece of yes, art if you yes, like. Yes, in an antique shop. And you'll see it sometimes just by looking is difficult, but sometimes by the how high they are right, how and how, mm-hmm. how thick they are and by and how you, much combination of sand you can kind of have the okay. first idea. So you have a good sense of if it's new or old. Mm. And uh, can you, Robert, if you buy a mm. tile that's historic, can you take it out of Portugal? You definitely can. But, Barbara, there's one thing, you and everyone really needs to keep in mind, is that there's a lot of theft these days of tile yes. work from the sides of buildings that are being resold illegally. And yeah. there's a group, Projecto SOS Azulejo, who is trying to save and catalog all of the tile work in not just Lisbon, but the whole country. So I would say go from a reliable antique dealer or a museum in order to know that you're not taking anything illegally out of the country. That's good. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. And by the way, my favorite um, tile mural is the story of the, about eight panels in the story of Joseph at the monastery. I don't know how you pronounce it, Hieronymus. Oh, the Hieronymus, yeah. yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. Uh, all of us are smiling because yeah. we love <laughs> yeah. that. That's out in Belém. And you go out to the Hieronymus Monastery in beautiful Manuelan-style architecture, sumptuous courtyards, and some of the best tile work anywhere, I would think. Hey, Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. Rick is calling from Tucson, Arizona. Rick, thanks for your call. Hi, nice to be on a chat about Portugal, where we have never visited in our years of traveling. We're going to be up in the north of the country on the river for a while, and then in Lisbon. And we're wondering if there are two or three sites or artworks or interesting places that are not so accessible that would be worth trying to to, uh, search out. I will say the cobblestones. Sometimes we tend to... The cobblestones in Lisbon. Yes, we tend to just look to the the facades of the buildings. And yes, we have been talking about glaze Mm -hmm. tiles, but actually cobblestones is like a different way of uh, the glaze tile kind of pattern. Look down, look to your feet, not only because there are cobblestones all over, so you have to have actually watched your step, but uh, have a minute to see the old pattern and what do they represent. What's the word in Portuguese for the cobblestones? Uh, Calçada. Calçada. The characteristic black and white cobblestones you'll find all over Portugal and on the great squares in Lisbon, you can see the sea and the and the ships and from where their trade came and so on all worked into the mosaic on the main squares. 
Robert, what's an idea that you would recommend for people wanting to have a little better insight into some often overlooked slice of uh, Portuguese art or culture? One of the best places to see tile work and artwork is the National Tile Museum in Lisbon because they have a wonderful historic background. They take you not only through the process of what it is to make a tile, but they also show you a historic overview of 500 years of tile work. And while many people consider going, they look at it on a map and it's not connected by the metro system or Mm -hmm. anything, and they think, well, maybe I'll not go out there. Definitely take the time to go out there. Slam dunk, that is the place Mm -hmm. to go to appreciate tiles in Portugal, the National Tile Museum. And it's just a six or eight dollar taxi ride from. Uh, you can the even museum. get there on the bus if you, you have one of the bus. Lisbon yeah. uh, metro passes or bus passes. Very you can nice. use that. There you go, Rick. Thanks for your call. Hey, great. Thanks. You bet. We're cultivating a taste for the tiles and porcelain arts that you'll see decorating so much of what you find in Portugal with Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's just close with your favorite tile images for a masterpiece in tile that we can see as we sight to see through Portugal. Robert, what is a favorite tile to see? Can I make it more than one? Because it's the entire metro system of Lisbon. The entire city is underground artwork because you take the metro and each station has a different tile pattern. And it's great to go explore on your own and sort of see the sights. Imagine if you've got a rainy day in Lisbon and you don't want to get wet. Uh, You can go into a museum or you can just take the metro, hop off on a stop where you see a really beautiful tile panel, and you can walk around, take pictures, and then keep going. Probably one of the cheapest art galleries in the world is to just go into the metro system, stay down there, and enjoy all that art. Christina, what's your favorite tile tip? Actually, it's a little bit more complicated because I tend to put them into ages, into centuries. Okay. So if we like uh, the yellows, the, what we call the pattern of the, the tapestry, mm-hmm. the yellows and the blues... Why not getting out a little bit of uh, Lisbon and go to Coimbra and we find them in the university? If we like the blue and whites, probably going to Porto and we have the Baroque time and it is the blue and white influence. If we like really the 20s and the 30s, they are wonderful cafes. So why not just do one of those rests when you are after a hiking? And (laughs) why not stay in one of those cafes from the 20s, from the 30s, and they have lovely wall murals. What I love is that there's no way to get away from tile Mm -hmm. work in Lisbon. It's surrounding you at every mm -hmm. moment. See, you might as well learn to appreciate it because it's a treasure right in your face. Cristina Duarte, Roberto Wright, thank you very much for contributing to our understanding of Portuguese tiles. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Obrigada. Coming up, we get a close-up view of the lives of everyday Russians from David Green's encounters on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Up next, we invite a European panel to explain the immigration issues their countries are dealing with. A European Perspective on the News is next on Travel with Rick Steves. You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The number of people fleeing for Europe to escape the strife in Libya and Syria has risen dramatically in recent months. European countries are trying to cope with a sharp rise in refugees and illegal immigrants, as well as the tragic incidents where some don't survive. In Europe, political movements for and against immigration are gaining new traction with each new report. 
To help us better understand how immigration issues are playing out in Europe, we've assembled a panel from Italy, Germany, and Belgium. Joining us on Travel with Rick Steves are Nina Bernardo from Rome, Holger Zimmer from Berlin, and Hilbrun Beis from Brussels. Nina, Holger, and Hilbrun, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's Thank a pleasure you. to be here. We've had some horrible events in recent months in Europe, but it seems to me like immigration has been an issue, and it is building, uh, regardless of particular tragedies and events. Hilburn, how do you sum up the immigration challenges that Europe is facing today? So Europe has been dealing with immigration for a while, and very successfully when we're dealing with immigration from within Europe, started with the Portuguese, and then it's moved on through uh, the expansion of, of Europe the challenge that we're... The Portuguese f- meaning... It started with the Portuguese, the Italians, moving in from the south of Europe up to the industrial north during the 1960s oh, and, and earlier. Right. Migration within Europe is a, is a very good thing. That's what we built Europe for. The challenges that are beginning to appear now is when we're dealing with cultural fault lines. We're finding that the integration of newer populations is much more difficult, much more challenging, and quite often are going to require us to adapt in some fashion towards new demands and and certain religious proscription. So, in other words, there's always been emigration, but now there are bigger demands by immigrating groups, and and people are moving around as they have always, but we have these issues of, are we going to change the way we teach in our schools? Are we going to change the way children are allowed to dress at school? Are we going to change the way we divide up our national budget because of the demands of immigrant groups? That's correct. And the challenge is finding rules that will apply to everybody but uh, shouldn't favor anyone. Holger, Europe has absorbed diasporas for ages. Germany is famous as the, the destination of so many thousands and thousands of guest workers from Turkey in previous generations. Is there something different going on today in, in your perspective? Well, I mean, as, as Hilburn rightly said, there was always like a movement within Europe and also like, you know, Germany took a call out in the 60s saying, we need workers, why don't we get a workforce from Turkey? And they came and, and worked and we have like the second and third generation already now and they're making their voice heard. I think what we're also facing is not just like, you know, migration within Europe, the European Union, but really migration over from mostly from, you know, Africa, from North Africa, from all different African states, trying to reach Europe as like a vision, like, like a dream country or like, you know, for, for a lot of those people who have basically nothing to look for. So back there's in their own an countries. entire continent of desperate people and it's just one miserable boat ride away. We just only last year, we basically had about 200,000 people trying to get on bones over in the Mediterranean alone. And so of these course, are they're boat people coming they're boat in people coming from Africa, mostly. And they're looking for not just like a better life, you know, but really like a life at all, you know. And that's kind of what we have to face. And that is very difficult. And I think probably Nina can tell a little bit about it, what it is, because most of them actually are landing in Italy. So Nina, you're from Italy. What is the, the discussion in Italy about how strict the border should be? What do you do if you have a boat of several hundred people beached on an Italian shoreline? You let them in or do you push them back out? But I think the problem in Italy is that for the longest time, Italians saw themselves as immigrants. So they were the ones who were leaving their own country for a better life. And it's only been in the past couple of decades that they've seen, like Holger said, hundreds of thousands arriving. And so they're operating in crisis mode rather than operating with some kind of a long-term plan. And instead of Europe coordinating its policies and its response, they keep operating in this crisis mode and kind of dumping a lot of the responsibility on Italy where the migrants are arriving. So the Italians see themselves as having a bit of an undue burden in the situation, but they're also very bad at managing the burden that they do have. And there's a lot of mismanagement of the refugee centers, of the welcome centers. There's not very much coordination amongst all of the different agencies. So they're making a mess of it, basically. So might Italy's attitude be, this is a European problem. We happen to be the South uh, Shore, and once a refugee comes to Italy... They can pass right through Italy and... and, Except that according to the law, they can't pass right through Italy. So where uh, a migrant or an immigrant or an asylum seeker lands, that's where they have to ask for asylum or refugee status. They can't go anywhere else. I thought the borders were more fluid in Europe where people can travel pretty freely. The the borders are absolutely fluid, but the, the rules governing asylum seekers and refugees is governed by the United Nations Convention on Refugee Status. And so that refugee status must be applied for in the country where a migrant okay, first Okay, so if arrives. you land in Italy, that's where you're supposed you to stay. That's kind of the theory because like within the European Union, uh, Germany and Sweden, basically, they process 50% of the 
the forms, you know, mm -hmm. to fill in the, the asylum seekers. They process quite a lot of that because people actually do get onto Germany because that's for quite a lot of them that is still the, the place, they, the destination, you know, of course, that's America are likely to get some work. Yes. But no. a lot of them are landing in Italy and trying to get out of Italy without being noticed by the authorities. So mm. they can say that, no, they've really actually landed in Germany or Sweden or somewhere else. So if you're a desperate if they person it, from right. Somalia, you'd rather end up in Germany. But Nobody the, wants to stay in Italy. The reality is you're in Italy and you got to get through Italy. When Romania joined the EU, I understand all of a sudden there was a, it was more difficult to control some people who were moving around. Are there Eastern countries in the EU that make it tougher for Europe to have its standards for immigration? The entire policy for Europe is only going to be as strong as the weakest border patrol. If Romania is a new country, they may not have the same experience uh, with these things. Have never had to deal with a great influx of, uh, of populations because there was no attraction until they joined the EU. Policies need to be harmonized. We're exploring how the latest issues over immigration are being debated in Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Hilburn Weiss from Brussels, Nina Bernardo from Rome, and Holger Zimmer, who lives in Berlin. My thinking is there's two kinds of refugees, those who are seeking political asylum because their lives are in danger, and those who are living in a poor country that want to live in a wealthier country with better economic prospects. Holger, what is the complexion of the immigration situation in that regard? Yeah, I mean, we really have to face there's a lot of people just wanting to come in. And, and I mean, I do understand that there's nothing wrong with saying, I want a better life. The Irish mm -hmm. had been doing this and then building up America or like mm -hmm. Italians were Italians going to, to the north. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what you do and this is what you have to do in some ways. So is there a reasonable fear among people who just like their country the way it is that two generations from now, it won't be the same country? And what position does that put that person in? You could live in Norway with five million people. Suddenly there's half a million immigrants because you're carrying people and you let them in. But then a generation from now, what was an idyllic little wonderful blonde country is suddenly a country with a huge and angry underclass. Yeah, I think the general thing is not so much like blonde or non-blonde. The thing is like, what are the values? What are the, you know, mm -hmm. things that, uh, you know, make a society? And, and how do you work with people who are, yes, they, they come maybe from a country that has been torn by war for the last 30 years and, and suddenly they land themselves in a little village in Germany and, and that's a, that's a tough a one. a lot of it is a perception problem as well. I think all these issues are very valid, but I think that a lot of it is a, a misperception on the part of people in the number of immigrants that are in Europe right now. And I know there's a lot of talk in terms of whether the immigrants coming in are Muslim or Christian. And most Europeans overestimate greatly the number of immigrants that are there and the number of Muslims that are arriving. And so there's this fear that things will change and things will change when actually it's a fear that's being fomented by a far-right radical fringe. And, and this I've is a big problem. I've had people tell me, you better go to Europe now because in a generation it's going to be a Muslim continent. And, well, and I, that's just, the numbers you talk don't to reflect that it's just at all. pretty ridiculous, really. But that's just a piece of cheap news to stir people up. Perhaps. It's the kind of headlines that grabs attention. So the only stories that you see about immigrants in the headlines are all the negative stories. I think it's quite pervasive. When we're dealing with certain cities like Marseille, like Brussels, we're finding that neighborhoods are changing very quickly. We're not allowed to make any statistics about what religion people, people adhere to. But if you can look at the numbers of people that could be received in different religious institutions, we have a reversal of culture for certain areas. Uh, in certain areas. In, you go in, to well, a working area in, in Marseille, you're going to have a well, huge Muslim in community. all of Marseille. Holger mentioned it's not a matter of are you blonde or are you uh, that Somali, really has to do but with it is a matter of assimilating or squatting, I would imagine. Mm. What is your take on the notion that it's two different kinds of immigrant issue? If an immigrant wants to come into the country, whether it's for asylum or for better economics, if they're interested in assimilating and becoming a German or becoming a, a Belgian, doesn't mean they have to be the religion there, but just embrace the standards of that society versus somebody who's just going to squat and take advantage of the economic uh, well-being. Is, is that? And then we run the risk of extremist cells growing out of this. But again, I think you're talking about very few fringe elements, but those are the elements that are getting most of the press. So instead of hearing about the stories, about the success stories of integration or programs that work, we're hearing much more about that. So the public perception is a misperception mm -hmm. about how great the danger is. Well, so we let's talk positive then. What yeah. are some countries that have uh, what you think are constructive and, and hopeful policies? It's a question of language, I think, as well. And I do believe, like, there are uh, quite a lot of programs, I mean, to say, listen, if you're here, if you want to learn the language of the country that you, you know, decide to, to live in now, 
then, you know, you can learn that. And, you know, there is an issue, not just, it's not about danger, you know, but it's about how do you go about living in a country that you choose to live. So that's a good issue, the language. Is it reasonable for a country to expect immigrants to learn the local language and, and function in the language? Absolutely. Of course and, uh, it is. Yes. And I think but there has to be a, an easy way for them to do that. To do that. So and you, I'll just give you an invite ex- them in to be the to do the, the low end work and pay them the low end wages. And that comes with a little more of a societal responsibility of give this community an opportunity to assimilate like you expect them. I think there are a lot of parallels between what's going on in Europe now and what has always gone on in the US. Mm-hmm. And many of the immigrants that came from Europe, uh, my parents were immigrants to the US. My father never learned the language correctly. My mother did. She was younger when she arrived. My brother and I went to schools in the U.S., and we were completely assimilated. I think part of that is something that takes place over generations. And what we're finding is that this is not always happening in in Europe because perhaps there's less of an incentive. The countries are smaller. The linguistic region to which you have access when you learn the language is, is less expansive. What we're proposing at the moment as solutions, and it's beginning to exist in the Netherlands, we're seeing it in Belgium, are these courses any person coming, this includes expatriates, huh? so it mm-hmm. means that even if you move to the Netherlands for a fancy job, you have to go through a cultural and language course, and uh, that's going to be the only way, the only way to have an extended stay and eventually naturalize is by passing your nationality exam. These things exist as well in Germany, and if you want to live in a country, of course you need to be in there in the school learning the language and learning how to communicate. Holger Zimmer from Berlin, Hilbern Baez from Brussels, and Nina Bernardo from Rome are updating us on the issues that Europeans are discussing related to immigration to their countries. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Auli from Turku in Finland emailed us, and Auli writes, Here in Finland, we have many immigrants and refugees, and with a very difficult language, all our officials routinely speak Finnish, Swedish, which is the second language in Finland, and English. Here in Turku where I live, we have the busiest library in the country, and they have books in a dozen languages on the shelf. It is mandatory for all refugees to learn Finnish, and they do. It's amazing to see a Muslim or a black person speaking perfect Finnish here, because it's so rare for us to see anybody who's not from Finland speaking our language well. But they've lived here since birth, and that makes them well assimilated into our society. The Muslim women often wear their native clothes and headgear, and we're used to seeing that on the streets. No one has a problem with that. I think the hardest for them is adjusting to the Finnish climate, as they usually come from warmer climates. But here they get the best education in the world, free of charge, and of course, free health care. And I'm sure they appreciate it. Wow, that sounds like a utopian situation uh, to have an immigrant coming in, learning Finnish, and, and fitting right in with, it sounds like, no problem at all. That's a beautiful example. I think Holger alluded to it before as well. Many of these people who are coming, especially from North Africa, Syria, Sub-Saharan Africa, are coming psychologically traumatized. Some of them are suffering mm. from post-traumatic stress disorder. They're coming from war-torn nations. Part of that assimilation also has to include some kind of psychological counseling for them. You can't expect people who are coming from that kind of a situation okay. to learn a language, assimilate attitudes immediately, and then go out and join your culture. But I would there think the lion's share of the immigrants are, are not people coming from traumatic, uh, desperate, war-torn areas, well, but are looking for economic asylum. I think that's correct, and I think we have to distinguish. As people coming from war-torn areas, they fall under the Convention for Refugees. The rules are set for them. In addition to that, what we see is the But there's opportunism. Just, you know, hordes of people coming into a country because it's wealthy and they're desperately poor. That's, to me, the challenge that Europe has. I mean, Nina, would you imagine the people coming in the boats are... I imagine most of them are escaping war. war. And And I imagine some of those who are, are not being processed as asylum seekers. Okay, so that's an issue then. I think it is an issue. Yeah, I think the number of asylum seekers is up in Germany alone by about 60% just this last year. And most of them come from Syria. We're also dealing with diaspora that that are growing ceaselessly and that that seem not to want to develop any connection with the culture that they're living in. If you look, for instance, at the North African populations in Paris, in Brussels, they're assimilating a lot less well three generations down the road than their grandparents were when they came to work in the mines and, and do a great deal of work. Something in the way that information technology flows has allowed these people to develop a very strong tie with a culture that seems to dislike the culture around where they live. My hunch is, with the way you can communicate these days and all the technological innovations make it easier to squat rather than assimilate, as was the case with our grandparents. Our grandparents couldn't stay in touch with the old country because they were just on the other side of the, the moon as far as communication goes. But today, you can essentially still be in, in Libya 
when you're living in Belgium. Absolutely. You know? There's a point, but I wouldn't call it squatting, no. Maybe it's just like not being connected with the society that you live in. That's With no um, intention of yeah. assimilating. And I'm, I'm in Berlin with like about half a million people from Turkish, uh, mm -hmm. you know, background. And in some neighborhoods, you just go and people don't really need to speak any other language than Turkish because all the shops are in Turkish. So there are people who have been living here in Germany for about 30 years and they don't really speak the language. And I think that's kind of a... Not really like a, you want to communicate, really you want to make a... Well, that's the challenge that Europe has, I would say. And what's, what sort of stokes this whole fire is desperation south of the border and economies north of the border that are getting more geriatric and they need more workers. So in Europe, I would imagine the economies need people coming from North Africa or Turkey to get the work done that needs to be Europe done. Europe with an aging population absolutely needs with an that. Aging Italy doesn't have a very high birth rate, so without... Those people coming in to do the jobs that Italians are no longer willing to do, all of the service industry jobs, go anywhere in Italy and who's cleaning your hotel room, right. who's the short order cook, who's cleaning the gas so station. So in a geriatric society, the, the choice is wither away or find a smart way to deal with your immigrant Well, child. we're but fortunate in Europe to have enough labor available for the work that we have. That's the whole idea of the European Union. We have free flow of, of labor within Europe. We need to use our resources, our human capital in the East to help them, help us, and then themselves. Our panel discussing immigration concerns in Europe includes Hilbert Baez from Brussels, Nina Bernardo from Rome, and Holger Zimmer from Berlin. Let's summarize now what each of you see as the main issue your country's having to face when it comes to immigration. Holger. Yeah, I think really the challenge now we face is not just numbers, but, you know, as Nina rightly said, we have to deal with people who are coming in and maybe they are traumatized and we have to somehow accommodate them, but also make a point in saying, listen, you know, we can only do it if you help us, you know, getting in touch, getting in contact as well. It's a two-way well. street there. Absolutely. Nina Bernardo from Rome. I think Europe is going through a lot of growing pains right now. And I think because there's so much polarization in the discussion, far right, far left, that nobody's actually willing to sit down and address a very complex issue that has lots of different layers to it. I think that's the first step. Instead of people just shouting at each other, we're in danger or we have to let everybody in, Let's sit down and have an actual coordinated conversation about how we can make the most of the immigrants who are coming in here. They're a plus, not a minus. And I have a hunch that, that media stokes the fear and stokes the misunderstanding in Europe, I think just the media like it does absolutely in the United States. Help. And Hilburn buys from Brussels. I think the challenge that we have is establishing rules that are going to apply equally to everybody, but will still be able to root out extremism and the problems that come along with massive immigration from an ideology that, that's destructive and seditious. Holger, Nina, Hilburn. Thank you very much for, for helping us better understand the challenges facing Europe right now when it comes to immigration. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. I am a poor, stranger While journeying through this world of Next, David Green from National Public Radio tells us about his adventure on the Trans-Siberian Railway in the middle of winter and what it showed him about the lives of the everyday Russian citizen today. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, Go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It was built to tie the vastness of Russia together as a nation, and it was completed in time for Joseph Stalin to have a convenient way to exile the people he considered his enemies. Today, the Trans-Siberian Railway is the lifeline for the massive expanse of the Russian Far East. David Green knew the journey from Moscow to Vladivostok would be the best way for him to get an intimate look at what Russia's really like for its average citizens, so far from his base at NPR's News Bureau in Moscow. He's written Midnight in Siberia to tell us about what he learned, the people he met, and their lives in today's Russia. And he's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure, Rick. Thanks so much for having me on. Something I've always wanted to do is take the Trans-Siberian Railway, but it takes a long time. Why did Russia build it? What's its importance to Russia today, and how big is it? I mean, Russia built it as a way to get to the Asian frontier, and it was built by, largely by, you know, slave labor, which was only the beginning of kind of the, the tragic history of this yeah. railroad, because then, uh, you know, Joseph Stalin used this to deport people into Siberia, and 
you know, the Tatars, the Crimean Tatars, we've heard Crimean in the news, you know, they're, they're a Muslim minority in Crimea, just one of so many people who were shipped in boxcars um, on the Trans-Siberian Railway. So it's a very, very dark past. And mm. today, you know, there are luxury trains that speed across this rail line. It costs twenty-five dollars or $30,000 for a ticket. I did not take that train, I should say. But that's just a reminder that now there are incredibly uber-wealthy people in this country. So, Rick, in a way, it's the spine, the geographic spine of this country. It's sort of the one thing that holds this vast country together, and it also sort of holds together different chapters of Russian history. And so I, it was just irresistible, the idea of jumping on mm. that train. Well, I'm so glad you were taking notes and talking to people and, and equipped with a local translator to make sure you, you understood what was all around you. Your book is such a, a fun way to like vicariously travel with you across Siberia. Set the scene. How, how many days, how many time zones, how far is it from Moscow to Vladivostok? Well, you have to design your own trip. I mean, if you just want to go from Moscow to Vladivostok, you can do it in five or six days. You could do it on the same train. I think you would get incredibly claustrophobic and you would want to just kind of crawl out the window at mm. some point, but you can do it in less than a week. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to do a trip like I did and take your time and get off at different stations and you know, meet people and see different communities and also experience different types of trains, you know, newer trains. And, and I took second class sometimes, which you have your own compartment. But I also wanted to experience third class and be with, you know, Russians who didn't have a lot of money and were using the train to, to get from one place to another and have different types of experiences. So I, I did the trip twice. One, I did it in about three weeks. And then when I did it the last time, I extended it even more. That's how much I loved it. And I did it uh, in about five weeks. But both were great trips. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Green and David Green's co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, and he's reporting on two trips on the Trans-Siberian Railway. His book is Midnight in Siberia. David, what would a typical day be on the train, not off the train, but when you're just en route? Do the windows open up so you can kind of eat the wind and gaze out at the vast expanse of Russia? You know, I went in the wintertime, so you don't want to eat too much wind, Rick. <laughs> I've got to tell you, it's a freezer itself. Yeah, there was actually one night where my window accidentally opened because there was a crack in it, and I felt this cold water coming onto my pillow. And it's sort of like you're in a spaceship. You, you expect the spaceship to be sealed and protect you from outer space. And as soon as that window cracks, you're like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? But, you know, an average day, there's, there's this boiler, this water boiler at the end of each train car. And that becomes a very important part of life on the train. It's kind of a modern version of a Russian samovar, you know, mm -hmm. that, that old sort of antique-looking brass-colored... Um, water heating device that a lot of Russians use back going through history. You'd wake up in the morning, you'd immediately take your glass with this kind of uh, silver handle on it that they hand out on the train. You would get a tea bag and some sugar, go up and get your tea, and you'd be meeting people there who were getting their tea. You might use the hot water to make some instant oatmeal and have some breakfast and then, you know, read a little bit, maybe stop in someone else's area if you want to meet people. They might have some homemade food that they've brought from their family. You know, I was eating homemade sausage from Belarus and chatting with people. Food is a big way to meet people. And then mm -hmm. sometimes, I mean, people will just stand there and watch the country go by. People can be very, very reflective. You might then stop at a station, go outside, buy some dried fish from a, a woman selling it out on one of the train platforms. And that's when you hear the snow crunching as people are walking around the platform. And, you know, then dinner time, either maybe go to the dining car, have some Borscht, maybe it's a night full of vodka shots with fellow travelers you've met, or it's a quieter night reading and making uh, some instant soup that you can buy yeah. for maybe 30 or 40 cents at a station, use the hot water to make that. So it, you get into a routine and, and you just kind of go along that way. You wrote in your book, it's all about sharing food and conversation. That's probably one of the joys is just sort of a constant parade of Russian characters and on the downside of that, uh, if you were on the train for the whole six or seven days, you could get stuck with a very annoying, eccentric, aggressive person right next to you, and you couldn't avoid them. Yeah. I mean, and, and when you're third class, you're literally on top of each Jeez. other, and you're stepping on fellow passengers, <laughs> kind of stepping on their bodies to get up to your upper bunk, and you're doing gymnastics if you have to reach one of the upper bunks. And yeah, I mean, you, you can get very unlucky. And You know, I, I find Russians a little aggressive. They've got a tough society, and I was recently in St. Petersburg, and I was in a crowd of people, and the ringtone for these guys next to me was the sound of a gun cocking, and just it kind of freaks me out. And I just <laughs> thought, I never heard, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, and I remember my only experience on a train in Russia. I, I was sharing the compartment with a Russian guy, and it was like forced party. 
here's vodka, we will drink. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And I got to tell you, Rick, I mean, sometimes the first impression you get from Russians doesn't tell the whole story. You know, if you meet Russians and they seem kind of cold and unfriendly in the beginning, you know, work at it. Maybe they'll end up being cold and unfriendly, but a lot of Russians sort of have this cold outer shell. And then when they begin to trust you and see that, you know, you're just a, a person who's curious, it becomes much, much warmer. I would think they have a respect or an appreciation for an American that's actually going to take the train ride and have an honest curiosity and openness to Russian people and culture. There really is an honest curiosity. i got to tell you, that was some of my favorite moments in taking these trips was when Russians would ask me questions about Mm -hmm. the United States or American politics. And often it would force me to kind of look in the mirror and think about our own country and our values and the assumptions yeah. I've made as an American. That was really, really eye-opening. And, and I think one of the, you know, as you know so well, I mean, those, that's one of the best parts of travel, I think. There is this misunderstanding between peoples. I remember from my travels in Russia back in the Cold War, Russians would sit me down and they'd say, if everything's private property, how can you go anywhere without trespassing? It's a good question. I got questions in 2013 such as, now, explain to me why you have the Electoral College again in a democracy. <laughs> like, why do you need, doesn't that thing just get in the way? And also, you know, how do you have the same names in American politics? If you guys are so great and have democracy that, you know, where the people speak and, and it brings different leaders, you know, based on the will of the people, why do you have so many Bushes and Clintons, you know, who are yeah. being elected or potentially could be elected? And so it was questions like that was kind of like, hmm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, looking at this society and trying to understand it. And they're doing the same thing as we're, as we're talking. David, as you were explaining that, it, it reminded me, sometimes we learn more about our country by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. I absolutely think that's true. And it gives you not just a perspective, I think, on your own country, but kind of a perspective of the world. Because I feel like when you're kind of in the mindset of being in your own place, you can make assumptions about other countries like Russia and other societies oh, yeah. that when you actually go there and learn about it, you realize how untrue they were. And you realize there's so much nuance that you can't appreciate when you're not actually there. Oh, it's like Putin. I mean, Putin is the one tyrant that every American loves to hate. And in Russia, he's more popular than any president's ever been. And he's been that popular for 10 or 12 years in a row, I believe. What do you make of that? Popular is a hard thing. I mean, polling in Russia is not always totally reliable. And you have to remember, like when someone says they approve of the president of the United States, it's not always that that person is a huge cheerleader. You know, there's nuance to their opinion. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing with Vladimir Putin. I Ah. talked to a lot of Russians who it wasn't like they were cheerfully voting for him. Mm -hmm. They just sort of think in a dangerous, uncertain world right now that he brings stability and Mm -hmm. certainty and, you know, Mm -hmm. big changes. A lot of Russians have been through so much of that that they're they're sort of accepting of Putin. Yeah, that's exactly the impression I got was that Americans are a little more excited about democracy than people who don't have a, a heritage of stability and freedom to travel or uh, economic affluence. And Russia is relatively affluent. They can travel now and they've got stability and maybe they'll deal with democracy later on. It's the longest railroad in the world when you add in its southern links into China, Mongolia and North Korea. Since 1916, the Trans-Siberian Railway has provided a nearly 6,000-mile-long link between Moscow and the Pacific port of Vladivostok. Our guest, David Greens, from NPR's Morning Edition. He's journeyed on the train deep into the heart of Russia in order to get better acquainted with its people and their concerns. And he's written a book about it, Midnight in Siberia. It's published by Norton. When you think about all of this travel, talk a little bit about just the culture on the train. When I go into a mini-market in Russia, there's so many pickles, and I didn't realize that (laughs) relates to vodka. You know, there's a lot of honey, and honey is considered medicinal, and you get different strains of honey. What sort of uh, things did you learn about the culture just by hanging out with the people on the train? Well, there is an expectation that any night could become a vodka-laden night kind of conversation into the wee hours And you have to know that that risk exists at any moment in time. You could start talking to someone and think, Rick, that your night was going to be reading a good book. (laughs) And then you're asked by a fellow passenger, vodka ili konyak, vodka or konyak. (laughs) And, you know, you can't have just one. Russians are really sneaky. They will draw you in and get very excited about conversation once it starts. And before you know it, you've had five or six shots and you're off to the races. I mean, that's the kind of culture that's there when you don't know when it's going to happen. And there were some nights, and, and I wrote about a few of them, where the vodka kept flowing. And, and I was very honest with my readers, you know, about uh, how memory works once you've had 
too much vodka. And, you know, we should be careful. I mean, there's so much alcoholism in Russia. It's a terrible problem. Right. Uh, so very quickly, you know, you, you, you definitely want to remind yourself of yeah. that, that alcohol is not all fun and games in, in that country. But it also, it's an avenue for getting to a fun place where you can really talk to people and enjoy each other. And I think there's something special in a in a society that can be so dark and difficult mm-hmm. to have a night where people just let loose and relax and let go of their anxiety. And I know that can go to a very dangerous place when you're talking sure. about drinking, but, um, uh, you know, but I think sharing, it's a part of sharing drinks and talking. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I love the way you described being on a platform at a Russian train station, the smell, the commotion, the sounds. Can you take us to a platform on a busy train station in Russia? Sure. I mean, in, in the wintertime, you just, I, I don't know how to describe it. You can almost hear seeing each other's breath. Um, it, it's that cold. People are bundled up and they're dragging suitcases across chunks of ice and people are smoking cigarettes and there's kind of the the smell of the train and once you get on the train you know there's the smell of sweat because everyone is in these bundled up coats and they're they're not taking them off quickly enough to feel cool and you know people are selling things for you to take on the train there's the instant noodles um there's you know you can get a last cup of tea before you get on the train you could buy cigarettes you could buy beer or, or vodka um, that you're going to take on the train with you. And then there are people who are going on very long trips to see family. And I don't know how some of these passengers, often they were babushkas, older women, who would have just shopped for so much stuff in mm-hmm. Moscow. And they're going to take it to their family. And I mean, you can't even see their faces because they're carrying so many bundles of stuff and dragging it across the ice. And so there's so much life and vibrance. I mean, I love going to an international airport, uh, you know, when different planes are leaving for different parts of the world and there are people arriving from different parts of yeah. the world. It's that kind of energy and excitement. Now, when you're in the middle of middle of Russia, I was going to say the middle of nowhere, but the middle of Russia, which is certainly not nowhere, you've got 45 minutes. The train's going to stop at this little town that no tourist has ever spent the night in. You've got a chance to get out. Can you actually be comfortable leaving your stuff and getting out? And two things would be on my mind. Is my stuff safe? And is the train going to leave without me and I'll be in this little town with, with no guidebook? Do you, are you <laughs> confident that you can look around for a little while? Or are you always tethered to the train and your, and your valuables? It is scary. Um, the time thing is scary because Russia can be so unpredictable. Something bad can happen when you least expect it. Now, I will say... The trains and the timetables are pretty reliable. I'll often say to the conductor, you know, we have 40 minutes here, right? They'll say 40 minutes, yes. I will give myself, I'll pad it by 10 minutes to make sure I'm right. back. I'll take my valuables with me. I'll take my money, but I'm, I'll leave my suitcase on board and mm-hmm. I'll go out. And, you know, it's thievery, stealing. It happens in Russia, but not all that common. And mm-hmm. so the payoff of getting out and actually breathing in some nice cold air and seeing a little downtown for at least just, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, it's worth it. And uh, I'll take my valuables. I will watch that clock like, I mean, obsessing about it to make sure I get back. But but I'll take the risk. Was there a sense on the train that everybody, there's this nice, young, earnest American journalist on the train. Let's look out for him. Or was it like, who's this guy nosing into our world and, and celebrating our poverty? Um, I would say a little of both, but usually it was the former. If there would be a conductor who was rude, yelling at me and not appreciating that I didn't know Russian that well and only spoke English, normally there'd be some other passenger who would stick up for me. And 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 those were touching moments. Now, the conductor is the word, I I think from your book, I I read provodnik, right? Provodnik, yeah. You wrote so entertainingly in your book, Midnight in Siberia. Midnight in Siberia, how sometimes they'd be really stern, and then suddenly they'd be all smiles. Uh, what, what can you learn just from your interactions with the provodnik on the Trans-Siberian Railway? You know, there was a moment when I saw a provodnik who was especially terrifying in the beginning, smiling at me and waving after I got off the train in this very warm way. That's the story of Russia in some ways. You know, you get there and it feels so foreboding and unwelcoming. And by the end, often you're just in love with the place and passionate about it. And, you know, so there were provodniks who would make me wait on a cold train platform for 20 minutes because I didn't have a paper ticket. I had an electronic ticket. There was a provodnik who tripped over a pillow or something and got so angry at herself. She turned on all the lights in the train, didn't let anyone sleep the entire night. But then, you know, to have those warm moments at the end, that's the story of Russia for me in some ways. 
And that's the story of good travel, is just to recognize that we don't understand the baggage and the turmoil and the frustrations in other people's lives. We're gallivanting all over this beautiful world, and there are people we're dealing with that are stuck in this little world of theirs, and they look at us, and sometimes they're not all smiles, but we've got to realize that we don't really understand where they're at and, and what's going on in their life, and, and we can cut people a little slack, and that makes it nicer for them, and it gives us a better travel experience. Well put. Um, and and there, were, there were moments when I would kind of be aggravated at something and then feel very guilty about uh, having yeah. done that, uh, you know, an hour or two later. We've been talking with David Green, and his new book is Midnight in Siberia. And we know David from his work as a co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. And now we get to know David as an adventurer going across Siberia twice in order to tell the story in this beautiful book, Midnight in Siberia. David, thank you so much for joining us. And let's just close with a reminder for people of the importance of getting out of Moscow and, and getting to know the personality of Russia by finding the salt of the earth Russia. Tell us about the importance of Moscow versus the rest of Russia. It's so important. I love Moscow. It's it, There's an energy there. It's, you know, if you like a city like New York and like that it never sleeps and like the nightlife, Moscow's a wonderful place to be. But it's not Russia. I mean, there's a lot of wealth in Moscow. People are less friendly in Moscow um, than they are at, once you get out to, to some of the outer reaches of Russia. You go to a small Russian city or a Russian village and it is just so poetic um, and so warm. And I don't know, just to feel the real, the real magic of Russia and to understand why I love it so much, uh, you, you've got to get out of the city. David Green, thank you for your journalism, not only on Morning Edition, but beyond that, taking us to Russia with you on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Well, thanks for your kind words, Rick, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to our colleagues at NPR in Washington for their help this week. We can email you when we're recording our next interview so that you can talk with Rick and his guests. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com where it says sign up for radio news. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.